1: More than once, actually.
0: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the
1: car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and
1: tell.
2: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over.
1: As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live1 Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only 3.99 per month. Dive into Live1's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists or create your own, check out exclusive artist-hosted stations, and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live1 Plus membership for just 3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com onecom bestmusic for details.
3: If you like this show, check out my other show, Somewhere Sinister. Each season, we take you to a different location where we tell sinister stories that happen in that area. The first season, we covered the Pacific Northwest and stories that involved a train robbery and mysterious severed feet. In Season 2, we're going to explore some stories in the Deep South, so search Somewhere Sinister on YouTube or use the link on this channel's page. You can also listen to it in podcast form by searching for Somewhere Sinister wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. Killeen, Texas is the town that lies right outside of Fort Hood Army Base. It was a small trading post until the beginning of World War II. Camp Hood, as it was called until 1950, was created in 1942 as a training camp to help meet war demands. Its name comes from Frank P. Killeen, who was the assistant general manager to the railroad that built a rail depot there in 1881. George Hennard didn't have much luck with women in the U.S. It happens, some people just aren't that sociable. According to George, though, it wasn't his fault. A group of white women were conspiring to keep other women from dating him. When the government wouldn't help him stop this group of nefarious women, he decided to take matters into his own hands. This is Monsters. On June 5, 1991, George Hennard was at the Federal Office Building in Las Vegas, Nevada. When he was approached by an FBI agent on duty in the office, he said, quote, I'd like to file a civil rights complaint. When they got to the agent's office and sat down, George was asked to explain the nature of his complaint. After a deep breath, George explained, quote, My civil rights have been violated by a secret group of white women. They've gotten together to form a nationwide conspiracy against me. They are preventing me from dating other women. He went on to say that they would spread stories about him, tell women that they shouldn't date him. They followed him around the country and even called employers and said negative things to keep him from getting jobs. When asked if he had seen these women following him, he said yes. He said that they would stand in front of his vehicle when he tried to drive. The agent got out a pen and paper and asked for the names of the women in this group, but George said he didn't know their names. The agent asked what businesses they had called to sabotage his job prospects, but George said he couldn't tell him. George insisted that he was afraid for his personal safety, but the agent told him that there was nothing they could do without more details. George left the federal building without having the FBI pursue this conspiracy against him. He seemed to believe he'd be able to tell a federal agent that his civil rights were being violated with absolutely no evidence to back it up, not even a name of who was responsible for this violation, and the FBI would just jump into action. To the FBI, George was just another person trying to use the system for a perceived slight against him, but to George, there was a real problem that needed to be handled and if the feds weren't going to do it, he would have to do it himself. George Hennard was born on October 15, 1956, in Air, Pennsylvania, to George Hennard Sr. and Jean Hennard. George Sr. immigrated to the United States from Switzerland and eventually joined the U.S. Army, where he became a resident in orthopedics. George Jr. had two younger siblings, a brother Alan and a sister Desiree. Jean was a widow with two children when she met George Sr., so George Jr. also had two half-siblings, Craig and Carla Clampett. George Sr. was sent all over the world by the Army, and the family lived in France, Germany, Thailand, and Indiana before George Sr. was made the commanding officer at McAfee Army Clinic in White Sands Missile Range near Las Cruces, New Mexico. George Sr. was a typical military officer father. He preferred a strict authoritarian style with his parenting. The kids were allowed a preset amount of phone time, and when they hit their limit, their father would simply disconnect the call. Another common punishment was to cut his son's hair. After getting in trouble on their dirt bikes, George Sr. took George Jr. and Allen to the barber and had their long hair cut. When George Jr. got in trouble again, the elder George cut his hair further on his own. People at his school said it looked like he had been mauled. His hair was choppy and uneven, and some said it looked like his father had performed the haircut with a butcher knife. Classmates said that George was outgoing and considered to be cool by the other kids, but after his father chopped his hair off, he got quiet and introverted. In high school, George got himself a sonar drum set and began playing music. It was the 70s and his life began to revolve around listening to rock and roll music and smoking marijuana. He joined a couple other teams in regular jam sessions, but he would constantly deviate from the song they were playing and start doing his own thing. The other teens didn't want to continue playing music with him, and he continued to be a loner. Once George graduated from high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He trained as a fire control technician before being assigned to serve on the USS Mississinowa. This ship was a fleet oiler that would provide fuel to other vessels along with other supplies and mail. While on this assignment, George would have spent most of his time maintaining the ship. In 1976, George was assigned to the USS Dixie, which was also a support ship, but this one specialized in repairs. The ship was outfitted with facilities that would make it possible to repair or fabricate anything a naval vessel could need. While on the Dixie, George had stops in Guam, Japan, Hong Kong, and the Philippines. Though George wasn't a major troublemaker, he had received reprimands for two minor infractions, and he was not recommended for reenlistment after his three-year deployment was over. It was likely due to his overall low performance scores, though specific details were not included in his service record. He received an honorable discharge. Not being ready to leave a life at sea, four months after leaving the Navy, George became part of the Military Sealift Command, which was a government organization that provided logistics support to the armed forces. Nine months after that, he joined the U.S. Merchant Marine. Despite sounding like a branch of the military consisting of salesmen with Marine Corps training, the Merchant Marine is a group of civilian mariners who are managed by a combination of government and civilian contractors who deliver goods and services over the water, in and out of the U.S. On May 20, 1982, George assaulted an African-American crew member on the ship where he worked, he also disobeyed a lawful command from the ship's captain and when they arrived at port in Louisiana, he had his mariner's license suspended for six months and was given 12 months of probation. Once his license was reinstated, George began working out of San Pedro, California. Those sailors who had worked with him before his suspension said he was racist. He seemed to have no issues working with anyone out of the San Pedro port. Maybe he was just trying to keep from having a repeat of his first incident. While working out of California, George had rented a storage space where he would regularly play his drums. Some of the other sailors asked if they could see him play, but he always made an excuse to turn them down. George was friendly with his fellow mariners, but he didn't make friends with any of them. He kept to himself and collected his checks, which were becoming substantial. He was a young guy with few expenses, so he was able to save most of his income as well as purchase himself a new truck. He paid cash for a 1987 Ford Ranger 4x4 and had a number of custom options added on. He had it pinstriped and added chrome wheels. He didn't only treat himself, he bought his mother a Cadillac as well. When George had time off, he took vacations to the Philippines, Thailand, and various places in South America. People that knew him said his interest in those places was strictly for prostitution. He liked non-white women, especially ones that would do whatever he wanted. He found that paying the women got him that obedience. In 1989, George was promoted to supervisor of the ship's crew. He was organized and had high standards which would make him a good supervisor. This promotion must have made him cocky, though, since on his first voyage out as supervisor, he rolled a joint and lit it up right in front of the other crew members. While on the ship, drugs and alcohol are a huge no-no. Crew members reported George and within a few hours the captain was searching the new supervisor's belongings. When he found the bag of marijuana, George admitted it was his and claimed he just forgot it was tucked inside the shoe where it was found. George was ordered to an inpatient drug rehabilitation program and entered St. Joseph Hospital in Houston on July 14, 1989. He was released two and a half weeks later. At his final court hearing, George admitted to using drugs while on the ship and claimed that he had a choice of sailing or drugs, and that he was choosing sailing. He wanted to be on the water more than anything else. Unfortunately for him, the judge followed the punishment guidelines for the U.S. code that prohibited drug use by merchant mariners, and his license was revoked permanently. As of October 17, 1989, George Hennard was no longer allowed out to sea. With no job and no prospects, George moved to an apartment in Austin, Texas and began working odd jobs. He found an ad in the paper where a group of musicians were looking for a drummer and he began to jam with them. They didn't mesh well with George, but they couldn't find another drummer, so they stuck it out with him for a while. By this time, George's sister Desiree had gotten married and her husband, Jimmy Schellenbarter, offered his brother-in-law a position at his construction business. He had a job doing contract work at Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota. The contract was just for the summer, but George could use the steady work, so he accepted. The rest of the crew was not impressed by George's work ethic. He would whine and complain any time he had to do something he didn't want to do. If Jimmy wasn't around, George would ignore the other crew members who were in charge. These guys knew that George would have been fired by then if he wasn't the boss's brother-in-law. Eventually, George's aggression affected Jimmy as well. One day, while on the job site, Jimmy told George to clean up a mess he had made. George ignored him. Jimmy told him again, to which George responded, quote, Fuck you, Jimmy. Then he pushed his brother-in-law turned boss. Jimmy wasn't having it, and despite being a good seven inches shorter than George, he picked up a wooden stake and smacked him in the collarbone with it. Then he put George in a headlock and threatened to break his neck. After the other crew members broke up the fight, George slinked away and eventually left South Dakota and drove to his mother's house in Henderson, Nevada. By this time, George's parents had divorced and Jean was living in an apartment in Henderson despite having retained a 4,400-square-foot 4, brick home in Belton, Texas, a house the neighbors called The Mansion due to its size and a small community of modest two-bedroom clapboard homes. Its six towering two-story columns on the front porch stuck out like a sore thumb in the neighborhood. A final assignment at Fort Hood had brought the Hennards to Belton, and after the divorce, Jean had moved to the Las Vegas area, while Dr. Hennard opened his own practice in Houston. Jean was planning to sell the mansion, but in the meantime, George would divide his time between living with his mother in Henderson and living at the house in Belton maintaining the property. In February of 1991, George learned that his appeal to have his Mariner's license reinstated had been denied. It was official that he would never sail again. He would never feel the calming sea air or visit the port cities where he could socialize with the working women he preferred. Less than two weeks after the decision was made, George saw an ad in the newspaper for Mike's Gun House. This wasn't a brick-and-mortar gun shop. It was a guy named Mike who was licensed to sell guns out of his house in Henderson. When George arrived, he really didn't know what he wanted. He had never had an interest in guns before then. Mike suggested a Glock 17 and laid it on the coffee table for George to check out. It was surprisingly light and had a decent capacity with 17 rounds in the magazine and one in the chamber. George paid $420 cash for the gun and sat down to fill out the paperwork. George listed himself as unemployed on the application, and of the handful of questions it asked, he answered everything truthfully except when it asked about drug use. Despite having gone back to daily marijuana use after he completed rehab, he answered that he did not use any recreational drugs. After George left, Mike took the form to the Henderson Police Department for processing, and while there, he told the receptionist that he had a bad feeling about George. The receptionist promised to red-flag the form, but there's no evidence that the Henderson police paid any special attention to George Hennard. Mike's bad feeling also didn't seem to stop him from selling George a second gun on March 29th, this time a stainless steel Ruger P89 for $345. On June 1st, George drove out to some canyons near Lake Mead with his drums and his guns. First, he set up his drums in the middle of nowhere and pounded out a drum concert to an invisible crowd. When he finished playing his drums, he downed some beers and fired some shots at the empty cans. Once he was used to the recoil of each weapon, he set up a row of full cans and hit them all, letting their contents explode onto the nearby rocks. When he was finished with his target practice, he pulled his truck over on the side of the highway and continued drinking beer. At about 8.20 p.m., park ranger Charles Luttrell approached George's truck and asked him if he'd been drinking. George set his beer on the floorboards out of sight and answered, quote, I can't say. George was ordered out of the vehicle and made to perform a field sobriety test, which he failed. After he was told he was under arrest, he informed the ranger that he had two loaded guns inside his truck. Along with the drunk driving charge, George would also be charged with possession of a loaded firearm in a motor vehicle. And yes, in most states, you don't have to be driving to be arrested for DUI. Just being behind the wheel while drunk can get you arrested. While transporting George to the Las Vegas Detention Center, Ranger Luttrell said he mumbled, Something, something, get me. He asked him to repeat what he said, and he responded, Quote, I said, they're out to get me. After a minute of silence, George clarified, Quote, Females, white women, they're out to get me. It's a conspiracy. What this had to do with him being drunk behind the wheel of his truck is anyone's guess. When delusional people start thinking that people are conspiring against them, they tend to believe it affects every part of their life, even events that are the result of their own actions. Jean soon arrived at the jail and paid the $100 bail to release her son. Just four days later, George would go to the federal building in Las Vegas and unsuccessfully attempt to file a civil rights complaint. When that got him no sympathy from the FBI, George decided to take matters into his own hands. Not by using his guns. Not yet. He chose to tackle this problem with a pen and paper. We'll be right back. As a This Is Monsters listener, you know the world can sometimes be a scary place. But no matter what happens out there, your home should be the safest place there is for you and your family. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe is advanced whole home security that puts you, your home, and your family's safety first. Here's why I love it. I can check on my home anytime I'm away, right from my cell phone. If my kids are home alone, I can check on them as well. I get an alert anytime one of the devices is triggered, and with the indoor and outdoor cameras, I can see exactly what happened and what set off the device. It was easy to set up. In less than 30 minutes, I installed the devices, paired them to the home base, and was ready to go. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com forward slash this is monsters. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com forward slash this is monsters. If you're looking for something a little different than the true crime shows you normally listen to, The Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast you should definitely check out, since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The show covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. I recommend people check out the episode with private investigator Stephen Rambam, or the episode with Bill Browder, a man who managed to cross Vladimir Putin and survive. There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. We really enjoy this show and think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to jordanharbinger.com forward slash subscribe. A few blocks away from the mansion in Belton lived Jane Bug, who had two pretty blonde daughters, 23-year-old Jill Fritz and 19-year-old Jana Jernigan. Jill had recently married, though George seemed to be unaware of that. He seemed to live in a world where they were still the young teenagers he would see in the neighborhood when he returned home on leave from work as a merchant marine. Despite both women being an exact match for the white women he was constantly claiming were conspiring against him, he seemed to have developed an obsession with them that lasted for years. Somehow, he believed that writing them a letter was going to solve the problem of white women conspiring to ruin his life. Other than the fact that that made absolutely no sense, the biggest problem was that George had sent the letter to the wrong address. He sent it to Jane Bug's neighbor, and he couldn't remember Jill and Jana's names, so he wrote Stacy and question mark Robin question mark, and he spelt Stacy with two e's at the end. This thoroughly confused the neighbor's teenage daughter, whose name just happened to be Stacy, spelt with an I-E at the end, but still close enough for her to believe that the letter was addressed to her. It read, June 6, 1991. Dear Stacy and Question Mark Robin Question Mark, surprise, surprise! Can you guess who is writing to you? We'll just take a look at the enclosed pictures to help you figure it out. They are for you and your sister, question mark, Robin, question mark. I never did learn her name for sure, believe it or not. To this day, 6 -6 not one single person has ever come forward and volunteered one bit of information that would help me lead to your capture. One day before I left Texas to return to Las Vegas and all of its hassles, I saw in the temple telegram your picture and impressive accomplishments. Is your sister of the same caliber? I hope so. The thing that immediately came to my mind was that you are senior in high school. I finally realized that the mystery of what the problem was had been, or was finally solved, after three and a half years. Think back now, Stacy, to January 31, 1988, the night that Neil Peart, my main man, and Rush played down in Austin. I remember seeing two young girls and their mother pass by me twice in a little tan compact car. What was going on here, I thought to myself. Oh God, I was looking at two sisters, was it? Only in just 15 to 17 years old at the time. I can promise you I had no idea of your young ages and the fact that I had just stepped into a legal twilight zone. My goodness, I must admit being truly flattered knowing I have two teenage groupie fans. It makes no sense. It was five pages, handwritten, and it just rambled on. Jill would later say that she didn't even know who George was, and Janice said she had seen him once while she and Jane drove past the mansion a few months prior. Otherwise, they had absolutely no connection to George Hennard. Neither of them were seniors in high school, and neither of them had any memory of driving by him in 1988. In the letter, he asked if they wanted to go out, and if they did, it would give him, quote, the satisfaction of someday laughing in the face of all those mostly white, treacherous female vipers from those two towns who tried to destroy me and my family. Then he wrote, it's very ironic about Belton, Texas. I found the best and worst in women there you and sister on one side, then the abundance of evil women that make up the worst of the other side. I would like to personally remind all those vipers that I have civil rights too. Just because I did hire an attorney to enforce my civil rights does not mean they have carte blanche to do what they want in violation of these rights. I will, no matter what, prevail over the female vipers in those two rinky-dink towns in Texas. I will prevail in the better end. He closed the letter by saying, No more talk of rejection, slander, deceit, etc., etc. The truth is now in writing. Peace, sisters. Love you both. George, your fan. P.S. How about sending me your nice pictures? Ha 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 ha. On the back of the last page, George wrote the address and phone number of his mother's apartment in Henderson. He waited days for a call or a letter at his mother's apartment, but it never came. Frustrated, he wanted to call Jane's house and find out why they rejected him. He wanted to know if the other white women had gotten to them too. Before he was able to lash out at the women he had become obsessed with, he checked the address and realized he had sent the letter to their neighbor. As a means of clearing up the goof, he called Jane's house and left a message on her answering machine while she was at work. Jana had gotten to the house before Jane and when she listened to the message, she was just as confused about it as Stacy was about the letter. The message wasn't any more coherent than that letter. Jane listened as a man said, I know you're going to think this is funny, but there's been a terrible mistake. Just an awful mix-up. There is a letter that was mailed to your next-door neighbors by mistake. We've got to set this right. It's a mess. Just a mess. A mess. Jana called her mother at work and asked her to come home early. Jane didn't know what to make of the message either, but she figured it couldn't hurt to go to the neighbor's house and ask. Next door, Stacy handed over the letter, probably relieved to learn that it wasn't meant for her. When Jane and Jana read it, they were shocked. With the letter were a handful of photos of a man she recognized from the mansion down the street. Jane promptly punched the number on the back of the letter into her phone and when she connected with George, she laid into him. She told him to never contact her daughters again in any manner, not on the phone, not by mail. George apologized and hung up. He wasn't sorry though, he was angry. He called the neighbor's house and yelled at Stacy's mother. He told her that it was her fault, that she had poisoned their minds against him. When Jane found out about the call to the neighbor, she brought the letter to police, but there was nothing they could do. They couldn't arrest George for sending a creepy letter. It didn't help that in the months following the letter, George was spending more time at the mansion, having to make repairs for the upcoming sale. In the middle of July, George went on vacation to Panama. He had patched up his relationship with his brother-in-law, Jimmy, so he took George to the airport and picked him up. When they were driving back from the airport, George talked about how his vacation had been ruined. He said the police had tailed him everywhere he went. Jimmy didn't understand. He asked if George had been involved with drugs. No George responded. They were after him. They were also tapping his phone. Jimmy brushed it off and tried to maintain a somewhat normal relationship with his brother-in-law, but it was short-lived. When George got back to the mansion, he realized that it had finally been put on the market. He was losing his home, which was really his mother's home, and he believed that the white women were closing their grip on his life. He had no other choice but to fight back. Every morning at about 5.30 a.m., George would go into a nearby convenience store and purchase an orange juice, a sausage and biscuit sandwich, a newspaper, and donuts. On October 16, 1991, he added a candy bar to the order. The cashier had seen George every morning, and this was the first time he bought a candy bar. When George dug in his pocket to pay for his items, he chuckled and said he didn't seem to have any money. He asked the cashier if he could stop it later and pay for it, and she agreed. It was National Bosses Day, and people were taking their bosses out to eat in the town of Killeen, less than 30 minutes west of Belton. Luby's Cafeteria was a popular destination and people from the area were filing into the restaurant for lunch on a sunny Wednesday. At 11 a.m., George had just finished writing a letter to his sister. It read, Desiree, enclosed is $100 to cover the water and electric bill. Do not pay the phone bill. I am responsible for it. Southwestern Bell violated my privacy rights. Therefore, they don't get paid. Don't let the people in this rotten town get to you like they done to me. Take care of yourself and be strong. Love you, Brother Jojo. Jojo was his childhood nickname. He apparently believed the phone company had tapped his phone and didn't want to pay them because of it. This was another slight against him on top of losing his Mariner's license and the white women conspiring against him. At 12.39 p.m., George Hennard drove his Ford Ranger pickup through the floor-to-ceiling window of Luby's cafeteria and into the dining area. Tables in the truck's path were smashed and customers who occupied them went flying. A waitress station was crushed and condiments splattered the hood of the truck. The patrons who weren't in the path of destruction jumped up at the sight of what must have been a horrible accident. Multiple good Samaritans rushed to the driver's side of the pickup to find out if the driver was okay. They worried that a medical condition might have caused the driver to lose control and plow through the front of the restaurant. As people were approaching to help George, he turned off the engine and raised both pistols, firing out of both the driver's and passenger side windows. 33-year-old Tom Simmons was hit multiple times and killed. As George jumped from the driver's seat, he yelled, this is for the women of Belton. George began shooting at the closest customers, the ones who had been knocked down when the truck crashed through the window. He killed 57-year-old Patricia Carney, 48-year-old Jimmy Carruthers, and 30-year-old Sylvia King. He began shouting, quote, This is for what Bell County did to me and my family. This is payback. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? He killed 33-year-old Deborah Gray. 48-year-old Michael Griffith, and 29-year-old John Romero Jr., the youngest person who would lose their life that day. Customers began building barricades out of tables and chairs, trying to shield themselves from the madman's bullets. The assistant manager unlocked the back door, which allowed many employees to escape, but customers were still trapped in the dining room. One of the kitchen staff, Mark Matthews, hid inside the industrial dishwasher. Auto mechanic Tommy Vaughn managed to dive through another window and create an opening for some of the customers to escape. 71-year-old Al Gracia was shot in the chest and was dying. Instead of running for the broken window with her daughter, 67-year-old Ursula Gracia went to her husband's side and cradled him as he gasped for air. George took the opportunity to execute the grieving woman with a bullet to the head. Killeen Police Dispatch reported the shooting over the radio at 12.40 p.m. Investigators Ken Olson and Chuck Longwell were not far from Luby's when they heard the call on the radio. They raced to the scene and were there in just a few minutes. As they snuck around the front, taking cover behind cars in the parking lot, George spotted them and opened fire. In the same parking lot was a Sheraton Hotel, where a group of police officers were in an auto theft training course. When they heard the commotion, they ran to their vehicles to grab their weapons and provide backup. As George turned to take aim at another patron, Investigator Olson saw his opportunity and fired a shot. The bullet hit George and he retreated to the hallway that led to the bathrooms. Customers had hidden in the bathrooms and barricaded the doors. George was stuck. Investigators Olson and Longwell advanced into the restaurant's dining room and ordered George to surrender. George responded, Fuck you, I'm going to kill more people. After exchanging more fire, George was hit two more times. With one round left in his Glock, he put the gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. George Hennard ended his rampage with a fatal bullet to his right temple. It was the day after his 35th birthday and the day before the second anniversary of having his Mariner's license revoked. George Hennard killed 23 people and injured 27. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in the country. An investigation afterward turned up little other than evidence that George was a very disturbed man who had a profound hatred of women. Based on notes and audio recordings that he had made of all of his actions, they learned of his belief that a group of white blonde women were working to destroy his life. They also listened to the audio tape of his arrival at the federal building and his frustration after leaving the meeting with the FBI agent. Recording wasn't allowed in the agent's office, so the meeting wasn't recorded. Witnesses would later say that George seemed to prioritize shooting women when he could, calling two of them bitches before he shot them. Of the 23 people he murdered, 14 were women and 9 were men. George Hennard lived a life of isolation where he could only find happiness while out to sea, where very few people could interact with him. Then he only wanted women in foreign countries who he could pay to be completely obedient, and then he didn't understand why women in Belton or Killeen didn't want to date him. He couldn't recognize that he was an awful person, so he took it up a notch and became a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operates the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. All this month, stream the funniest films for
0: free on Pluto TV. Watch comedy classics like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Mean Girls. Or drop in for a Tyler Perry marathon with a Medea family funeral and Medea's witness protection. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Get Shorty, Be Cool, Key and Peel, Comedy in Color, and more. And no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees, no joke. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start laughing today. Pluto TV, drop in, watch for free. You're
2: hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many as the evening comes to an end and people start to head out. You think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk.
1: Check out liveone.com slash best music for details.
0: Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you know what. So much for Lucky Seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil, and Campus Oil are now CERTA, delivering the same warmth to your home, now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See surtaireland.ie
1: No, good boy. Keep your hat on, Pet. Why? We're playing
2: dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside.
0: When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.